Thanks to Avast for supporting Future Hindsight. With Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world by helping you stay safe from viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. Reportedly, Donald Trump used to tell people he worked with at his company decades ago that it's the little things that people get caught on. If widespread reporting of the target of the FBI's raid on the former president's home at Mar-a-Lago in Florida last week is to be believed, the little thing in this case may have been carting off 15 boxes of presidential records at the end of his term. But we're a long way from actual accountability, and accountability in cases of fraud and so-called white-collar crime is frustratingly elusive. To that end, I wanted to share an interview we taped back in 2021 with law professor Jennifer Taub. She's a leading expert on white-collar crime. These are crimes that cost Americans billions of dollars every year, but are never talked about as much as street-level crime, despite the fact that, as you'll hear in this interview, lives are ruined. Lives have even been lost, with devastating ramifications from malfeasance in financial crimes, healthcare, and pharma fraud. Professor Topp's book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, came out two years ago, but still feels super relevant. Topp's previous book about the subprime mortgage bubble and 2008 financial crisis, Other People's Houses, was published in 2014. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So today I thought we would start with the basics. How do you define white-collar crime? I love so much, Mila, that you're calling that the basics because it's incredibly fraught. But let's start with the most simple definition, which was offered by the sociologist who coined the term. So Edwin Sutherland defined white-collar crime to be offenses committed by somebody of respectability and high social status in the course of their occupation. And by that, he was leading with status. And so the universe was narrowed when he coined this term in 1939 to really the wealthy and well-connected or to business organizations, and then crimes committed in the course of their work. In what way is it fraught? Because people don't agree with this definition. Now we understand white-collar crime in a different way, I think. Popularly, people think of it as something that is not a violent crime. How would you say we understand it today in popular media? Sure. The reason why the definition is fraught and it's changed since 1939 is because, you know, he coined this term, Sutherland did, in a speech he gave in 39. Then a decade later, he wrote a book. And within months of his writing a book called White Collar Crime, he unfortunately passed away. So he didn't get to control his legacy. And so while he, in his definition, led with status, and then in his book from um, 1949, 
you know, 10 years later called white collar crime. He focused mostly on corporate crime. So again, really economic crimes of the powerful. After he passed away, um, things shifted to where we tend to define white collar crime by the nature of the offense instead of the status of the offender. And it makes sense as a lawyer, because if you're a lawyer or a prosecutor um, and you want to convict somebody for some wrongdoing, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they took certain steps with a particular frame of mind. So we often today define white-collar crime as those offenses that are centered in fraud, cheating or misleading somebody so they part with their money in all kinds of fraud, whether it's you know investment fraud or bank fraud or Medicare fraud or things involving hiding uh, money like money laundering or tax fraud or tax evasion. Those are the kinds of things that we often think of as white-collar crime. Other crimes are related to things like adulterating food or misbranding drugs and pharmaceuticals or environmental crime. You know, again, it's very crime-focused as opposed to person-focused. And Mila, you mentioned the word violence. And yeah, I mean, I think there's this misconception when you ask an ordinary person, what is white collar crime? They think, you know, often wealthy white people, wealthy white men um, doing things like embezzlement or insider trading. And most people would associate it with, in the first instance, would talk about it as being nonviolent, you know, nonviolent economic crimes. But when you look at people who are victims of various white collar crimes, often have the equivalent of violence, equivalent of physical harm. And one example can be if you were one of the millions of families who lost their home in the foreclosure crisis, who were victims of a fraudulent lending scheme or victims more broadly of this financial crisis that was resulting from these toxic mortgage-backed securities, all of it steeped in fraud. If you were someone like that, you know, losing your home, being forcefully evicted by a sheriff is pretty violent, I have to say. Yeah, totally agree. Well, let's talk about the victims, because this is another myth that white-collar crime has no victims, but nothing could be further from the truth. Maybe the best example in terms of us understanding it and feeling it is the OxyContin story uh, of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and the true victims of addiction. You know, it, it is astonishing to me how we had the equivalent of a major drug bust and yet no people, none of the the heavy-duty dealers are going to face any criminal consequences. And when I say that, I'm referring to Purdue Pharma, the company that manufactured OxyContin, a highly addictive opioid, and the owners of that, a branch of the Sackler family. And here's the thing, Purdue Pharma first launched their OxyContin product um, back in the 90s, and they pleaded guilty Before, in May of 2007, the company itself entered a guilty plea, a felony, because they had admitted to misbranding OxyContin almost since it was launched. They agreed at the time to pay um, $600 million. They were participating in um, misleading doctors who maybe were not trained in addiction to prescribe this highly addictive drug to people who shouldn't have gotten it. It should have only been for end-of-life care or for people who were 
in incredible cancer pain. It was not meant for things like if you've had back surgery. It was not meant if you've just gotten a tooth pulled at the dentist. And they claimed falsely, even though the company knew better, that it was less addictive because there was a time release of the opioids involved. And so, you know, this this plea that they entered into in May 2007, literally right after entering into that plea, before any time passed, they began this illegal scheme again. And the reason why I know this is in 2020, right at the end of Bill Barr's reign over the Department of Justice, Purdue Pharma again pleaded guilty. And this time, it was even a bigger scheme. They pleaded guilty to cover their activity from May of 2007 through at least March of 2017. And it was a multi-billion dollar criminal conspiracy. And according to the plea, Purdue Pharma conspired to help other people dispense OxyContin to people who had no legitimate need. And this was a violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. But this conspiracy also involved lying to the Drug Enforcement Agency. And they had been telling the DEA that they had put in place an effective program to prevent unlawful diversion of OxyContin, but it wasn't true. And what's worse than that, in addition to not having this program in place to make sure it didn't, the drug didn't get into the wrong hands, they were deliberately marketing their opioids to more than 100 healthcare providers. They already had good reason to believe were actually diverting the drugs. And this is all in the plea agreement published on the Department of Justice's website. And there's even more. They also, this time around, admitted um, that they had conspired to violate the federal anti-kickback laws. And this involves illegally paying doctors to write prescriptions of their opioid products. That last part, the kickback part, only covered between 2009 and 2017. But nevertheless, this is tremendous. You know, they were prosecuted, they paid a fine, and they kept on going. And to me, what's outrageous here is that none of the family members or employees this time around were charged with anything. Back in 2007, some executives, not family members, pleaded to misdemeanors and paid some money. They could have gone to jail even for the misdemeanors. They didn't. So this time around, it's you know the Department of Justice, again under Bill Barr, boasts about the size of this, how big the criminal penalty was here. It was $3.5 billion plus a $2 billion forfeiture and $2.8 billion to settle civil liability. And all that sounds like a lot of money, but the Sacklers themselves, all they agreed to do is pay $225 million. But this family has a multi-billion dollar fortune. And they paid that money to settle what's called False Claim Act violations. But if those were brought as criminal charges against them, as opposed to just this civil settlement, they come with up to five years in prison. And just to close this out on them, you know, in the press release, the Department of Justice made clear that this was not a criminal release of anyone, including the Sackler family. And the implication there is that, sure, they could still be charged with crimes, but that's almost laughable. People who are in the know believe that the family members must have, you know, it's an opinion, but based on what they look at the size of the settlement with a corporation, it seems quite likely that they made a deal with William Barr's Justice Department to stay out of jail in exchange for having their company pay these big ticket fines. So that's how, you know, that's how the family made out. But, you know, over 200,000 people have died just of prescription opioid overdoses since they began 
pushing this highly addictive drug. And they paved the way for other companies to manufacture similar opioids that got into um, the stream of commerce, got people hooked, and eventually people who couldn't afford it anymore then started using injectable street drugs. So it's just, oh, it's astonishing to me how many people they victimized and how there's no real accountability for the, the drug dealers behind this. Yeah, that's right. It is really surprising how much they get away with. And it's clear that money and power protects high-status, white-collar criminals from having to suffer any of the consequences of being caught. Basically, it pays to commit these crimes because, you know, they get away with it. Essentially, they, you know, pay these fines, which amount to a slap on the wrist. And you use the term implicit immunity. Can you explain how that works and how, in practice, white-collar criminals seem to avoid the most serious consequences? Yeah. Even if they're convicted. Yeah, I, I talk about this concept of implicit immunity alongside with another one, mutually assured immunity. And they're related. And to me, implicit immunity means that based on your status in our society, you're going to be given a pass and a lot of second chances and third chances, and in some cases, infinite chances, even if you violate white collar criminal laws. And, you know, the exception proves the rule. And when someone of that status ends up getting prosecuted and put in jail, they end up going to a kind of club fed, a minimum security prison camp. And of course, having your liberty taken away is never good, but they're not treated like someone of a lower status or class. And they're a lot physically safer and healthier in those kinds of surroundings. And again, it's never good to have your liberty taken away, but the likelihood of getting caught and the fact that people often emerge from prison, even in those situations, and they can rehabilitate themselves. Sometimes they get full presidential pardons after, and they certainly have a lot of money often if they've been good at their white-collar criminality. To me, the poster child of implicit immunity is Donald Trump. He is somebody who, from the beginning of his career in his 20s all the way through, into and after his time in office has been engaged in, I believe, unlawful and perhaps criminal behavior and corruption. And had he, instead of being given so many chances, given his many brushes with the law, if he'd actually been held criminally accountable, he would have served time in prison instead of the White House. In in my preface of the book, the last section of the preface is called The Elephant in the Room. It talks about his legal entanglements dating back a half century. And time and time again, federal agencies settled civil charges with him or his businesses. And those settlements were under statutes which allowed for a criminal case if there was enough evidence there. Things like securities cases settled with the SEC, money laundering cases. You wonder why along the way there was never an effort to dig deeper and see whether these could have been 
criminal cases. I mean, there was a RICO settlement made right after he was elected. And I go into detail, heavily and carefully footnoted here. So that's an example of implicit immunity, and it's quite dangerous. And the mutually assured immunity is more like the situations where one person has a kind of dirt on another person, and therefore no one speaks out against each other. And that's the kind of thing where I think someone like Jeffrey Epstein gets away for so long with what he was doing because he had, in that case, really damning criminal information, apparently, about many people. And to me, what was happening there is a kind of white-collar crime because I think there was probably extortion going on because he had videos of people engaged in criminal actions. And so it's all very fraught because what mutually assured immunity does is it means that people who are in a certain circle will not hold each other accountable, and they tend to be the most powerful people who can use criminality to gain more power and wealth in our society. When we come back, Professor Taub is going to explain the ways in which white-collar crime damages democracy. But first, thanks to Avast for supporting Future Hindsight. Avast is a global leader in cyber protection for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month and empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Because Avast believes essential protection should be available to everyone, a free version of Avast One still includes award-winning free antivirus, free VPN, free firewall, and much, much more. Avast's premium version has even more advanced protection and allows you to protect multiple devices. Privacy features keep your identity and actions hidden, security solutions stop malware, phishing, and virus attacks, and performance products clean up and speed up your devices. Avast's award-winning antivirus stops viruses and malware from harming your devices, and its VPN allows you to connect safely and securely to public Wi-Fi and conduct your business wherever you want without the fear of cybercrime. I'm a fan of the ransomware protection. It secures your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. Confidently take control of your online world with Avast One. It helps you stay safe from viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Woke AF Daily is your much-needed wake-up call in a weary world. Get woke with my bevy of special guests from the worlds of news and politics, arts, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and end on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with me, Danielle Moody. And now, let's return to my conversation with Jennifer Taub. So on a larger scale, how does white-collar criminality hurt our democracy? I think that a democracy like ours that entwines a public and a private sector depends upon having institutions in both sectors be trusted 
And to be trusted, you have to be accountable and kind of self-policing. We want public officials who are honest, who own up for their mistakes. And similarly, we want businesses that can create products and services that we all want and need, creating choice, making our lives healthier and happier and more fun and more enlightening, you know, whether it's book manufacturers or pharmaceutical manufacturers. We want these things in our lives because they enrich our lives, they create jobs. We want leaders of those businesses to be honest, to be transparent, and to be accountable. Because if you lose trust in businesses, you could lose trust in businesses that we need to count on. One example, even before the coronavirus was, you know, big pharma, not using Purdue in this case, but other examples of big pharma, given some of the mistrust based on scandals, legal settlements before, there was growing and still is anti-vaxxer sentiment in the country where people believe that pharmaceutical companies are pushing unsafe vaccines that cause autism on the public. And that's not true. But once you erode your trust, then conspiracies like that can grow. This is the way in which when we lose trust in an industry or in a sector or in the private sector generally, then when we really need to count on them and have the public's trust, we might not have it. And so this is why honesty, accountability, you know, doing right by those you harm and not letting the heads of companies who presided over fraud or dishonesty stay on or keep their hundreds of millions of dollars of gain. Otherwise, we have an incentive system not to have transparency, honesty, and accountability in either the public or private sector. Yeah, I think this is a good time to talk about government corruption, because to your point, trust also needs to exist in the public sphere, and how there also we appear to be failing in holding people accountable if they engage in corruption. Can you talk about the McDonald case and why the bribery statute was ineffective? to hold him accountable. To set the stage here, McDonald was the former governor of Virginia, and the Supreme Court overturned a conviction of him related to alleged bribery. And what makes the case particularly complicated as a legal matter is that because he was a state official, he was not actually charged under the standard bribery statute that applies to federal officials. Rather, he was charged under a kind of wire fraud statute and an extortion statute that can apply to all people. But as part of the lawsuit, he, his lawyers, and the federal prosecutors agreed that for purposes of this case, they were going to point to that federal bribery statute that applies to federal officials as well. And so due to the Supreme Court's decision here, they narrowed the way that federal law can apply to federal officials, even though that law, that particular bribery statute, was not even in the case. So at the start, this is why it's such an important sweeping decision, because it doesn't just apply to the federal laws that go against, generally against officials, including state officials, now will also apply to members of Congress and others. Okay, so 
What's so upsetting is what the Supreme Court essentially said, and it was a unanimous decision. What they said is they took a look at the plain language of the bribery statute and said, we're looking at this and Congress, if you want to change it, you've got to change it because right now, the way our anti-bribery laws work is that paying for access, even hundreds of millions of dollars, when you pay a politician, whether state, local, or federal, et cetera, for access, for them to introduce you to people who might be able to help get you contracts, you know, you could pay cash for the daughter's wedding, gowns for their wife, a Rolex watch that's engraved, vacations, access to sports cars, you name it, you can pay all of that to make sure you gain access and opportunities and access to opportunities and making connections and sitting at banquets that are paid for by the government. Although that's quid pro quo, you're paying for access. Paying for access is not unlawful under our existing statutes. That's what it basically said. And the reason why he was acquitted is because he never took an official act under the meaning of the statute. So he did not sign legislation or veto legislation or make a particular official decision to help the guy who was giving him all of these gifts. And for that reason, it was not a federal crime. And for a lot of people, that's disturbing. But this was not entirely surprising because the Supreme Court had ruled similarly on a different case years ago, unanimously. And so really, the ball is in Congress's court. And if they don't want to be buttered up and paid for access, they could change the statute to prohibit any kind of direct personal payments or gifts over a certain dollar amount, for example, and make that a federal crime. But they haven't done it. Yeah, there's not really any motivation to do that. But they do have ethics rules, right? They could codify some of the ethics rules. But you're right. There's no appetite to create a law that someone might inadvertently violate. But I think maybe some people want to be paid for access. I think people are getting paid for access right now. I feel like we should talk about Enron as an example of where it actually work, that there was a bigger appetite in the past to actually hold people accountable and that it crumbled in the 2000s, most notably with the financial meltdown in 2008. I think it's important to talk about how Enron is a good example of how it actually could work and has in the past. When you dedicate resources to a problem, you get results. Um, with Enron. The government decided to put together a task force and put people behind it. They did the same thing after the savings and loan debacle. And when you tell people, we want you tasked to this, we want you focused on this, and you put the resources on it, you can get results. And, and back then, when after the big Enron accounting scandal, there was a task force led by Andrew Weissman, and it was quite successful. At that time, in the accounting fraud era, that was between the 1990s and early 2000s, we saw one corporate leader after another who was caught cooking the books, um, misleading investors, actually be held to account. And at that time period, chief executive officers and other high-ranking executives were prosecuted, convicted, and sent to prison. And to use one example, the four years between July of 2002 and March of 2006, the Department of Justice convicted more than 80 
two CEOs, 85 presidents, 36 CFOs, and 14 chief operating officers in corporate fraud cases. You know, so, you know, I can give name after name, and that happened, but after the 2008 crisis, we stopped doing that. Why did we stop doing that after the 2008 crisis? You know, I think it was a confluence of factors. One factor that led into it was after 9-11, a tremendous amount of resources at the FBI, which is a division, obviously, of the Department of Justice, were focused on counterterrorism efforts, domestic terrorism surveillance. That is one piece. Another piece was Although the Enron Task Force was extremely successful with these accounting fraud cases, they also went after Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm. The partnership was convicted, and then the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the conviction was overturned based on an interpretation of a federal statute. And without getting into the weeds, even though the conviction was overturned, Arthur Anderson was done for. And there was a bit of a backlash um, where people kind of got shy and thought maybe things went too far. So this, and then the third piece of this is something that my friend Jesse Isinger, who wrote the book, The Chicken Shit Club, talks about, which was a kind of fear of losing cases and a kind of muscle memory loss. So what he talks about is around the late 90s, the Department of Justice started entering into settlement agreements, criminal settlement agreements, instead of prosecuting businesses. So they're called deferred prosecution agreements or non-prosecution agreements, where a company will pay a tremendous fine but not technically be written down as having committed a felony. With a deferred prosecution agreement, they have to agree to behave themselves, let's say, for three years, have an internal monitor, and if they don't commit any more crimes, then, you know, they're never charged. And as this started to happen, as settlements started to happen, you know, he believes that people within the Justice Department lost not just the will, but the knowledge and the ability to bring tough cases before grand juries and into courtrooms and win them. So that's part of a theory. It doesn't answer the question as to why executives themselves aren't charged, but sometimes there's a sense that even though it shouldn't happen this way, that if the CEO is allowing for the corporation to enter into a settlement and pay a lot of money, which is going to come out of the shareholders' pockets ultimately, that he is able to avoid prison himself. It's not supposed to happen. That goes against the Department of Justice guidelines. But look around. What else could have been going on? It's really shocking when I was reading your book and how often this happened, that they got away with it and signed these non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreements. And the thing that always stood out to me is that in almost all of these instances, they admit to no wrongdoing. And every time I read that in the paper, I think, but why? Why do you not agree to having done something wrong if you're not going to be prosecuted? Like, what is the purpose of this from a legal standpoint? So the purpose of that is to avoid civil litigation from consumers or shareholders, they're trying to avoid having an admission on the record 
of liability that can then be used in court against them. But it kind of makes it more expensive for um, civil litigants to bring their cases successfully. They'll have more hoops to jump through in terms of surviving motions to dismiss and gathering evidence than they would if you just have a statement saying, yep, I did it. Got it. Well, so let's talk about your proposed fixes. Um, What are they? And um, maybe you can go through them briefly. So one of the ideas is to give prosecutors better tools. We've already talked about how the anti-bribery tools have been weakened. Um, What one area prosecutors need in order to track down money laundering or to prevent money laundering is to stop the use of these things that are called anonymous shell companies that are set up often in Delaware, not just overseas, but here in the U.S., that are just used as vehicles to hide the illicit proceeds of crime. And now most shell companies have to disclose their true owners. And what's interesting is this corporate transparency law was passed. Trump vetoed this legislation, but Congress overrode his veto. So that's one good thing. And the rest of my suggestions really mostly center around this idea of priorities. The most important thing, I think, is to create a new division within the Department of Justice that is focused on prosecuting, convicting, and incarcerating big money criminals. And we need to strengthen laws so that they have the tools they need to do that. The other thing I emphasize is to better empower whistleblowers, journalists, and victims. One of the most successful ways to catch fraud against the government is this thing called the False Claims Act, and it creates bounty fees for whistleblowers. It allows individual people to sue corporations that are cheating the government. And if the Department of Justice wants to step in, they can step in. And if they don't, the individual can pursue the case on their own. But if the Department of Justice steps in and gets money in recovery from the fraudster, then the whistleblower themselves gets a piece of that. I have other suggestions, but I think the top one is really to put a sign up, you know, at the Department of Justice and saying, we're back in business now. We're going to put the brakes on this runaway white collar crime epidemic. One of the things that we haven't spoken about yet is the magnitude of these white collar crimes. And it's difficult to ascertain exactly how much it is uh, in terms of dollars. And of course, it's not only dollars, right? Because as we have spoken already, there are also lives lost. But the big impediment to that is that we don't have a national database that can actually collect this. But in terms of your estimation, What is really the magnitude here of white-collar crime that actually we're all paying for in some sense? That's such a good question. I looked in every possible resource I could, and what I've come up with is that white-collar crime in America, just fraud and embezzlement alone, costs victims anywhere between $300 billion and $800 billion a year. And that number is huge on its own, but let's compare that to street-level property crimes, things like burglary or larceny and theft. And that costs only $16 billion. That's a number the FBI tallies up annually. So we have at least $300 billion in just fraud and embezzlement crimes and $16 billion in street property crimes. It just completely eclipses it. And we just don't have a handle on it. Given these gigantic numbers, What can we do to make people change their minds about how they 
think about white collar crime because right now we're locking up people who are essentially petty thieves, right? But we're not locking up the people who are actually inflicting harm on our society at large. I was thinking about this because I had an instance of identity fraud recently. The bank realized what it was. It was a credit card issuer bank, realized what it was. And then I said, you know, can you call me back with details? Because I wanted to figure out who to report it to. And here's the thing. I'm not going to call my local police department in my small New England city, right, to report it. And I don't even know, and I'm an expert in this area, should I be reporting this to which banking regulator? Or should I report this to the FBI? And are they going to even, you know, where are they going to put this? If you were mugged on the street or if your car were broken into, people make police reports. Why? Because one thing, they can get insurance if they make the police report, but it's more instinctual, right? So if my purse were stolen when I go into a restaurant, I'd report that. And it feels really violative. All your things are taken. But how much money could that possibly be? Whatever your handbag costs and then, you know, time it takes to replace your credit card and the money you have in it. But if there's identity fraud or there's some other kind of fraud, we don't report it. And I think that we need to demand that there's a place that we can report this to so it can be tracked. And if people start getting the sense that they have a place to report it to, and no one's doing anything about it, I think that could create the energy behind accountability. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to help us demand accountability, both from the DOJ towards white-collar criminals, or even maybe just changing the way that we talk about it? One thing would be to reach out to members of Congress and say, Tighten up the anti-bribery laws. If you don't want to be on the take, change the laws because they're not going to root out corruption anymore. And I think the second thing is to decide that you want to speak out when you hear about a company engaging, you know, yet another criminal settlement and, you know, speak out, whether it's on Twitter whether it's to your member of Congress, whether it's make a complaint to the Department of Justice to start making noise in any way we can so that this issue becomes pressing. Every time we speak out about the unfairness here, every time we question why it is that, you know, no members of the Sackler family or no big bankers went to jail, every time we say that, it puts more pressure, I believe, on those in power to do the right thing instead of just ignore it. Good advice. So why did you write this book at this time? I wrote this book because when I wrote my last book about the financial crisis, where I was trying to look back in time and trace the legal changes that created the toxic mortgage supply chain, my first time I spoke about the book at the book launch back in 2014, the first question someone asked me then and what people kept asking me is, why did no bankers go to jail. It turns out um, it wasn't none, but only one high-level one did. And I, I didn't know the answer to that question. And I realized that that question couldn't be asked in isolation, um, that we needed to sort of step back and think more about white-collar crime in general. And I began teaching and studying white-collar crime and became utterly fascinated um, with the problem. And so I wrote a book that I wanted to read. I wrote a book that I thought could be an important part of the conversation and kind of a staple. Well, I also wondered why nobody was prosecuted or put in jail, because 
it felt that we were so close to the Enron case. And it felt like, for sure, heads should have rolled, and then it didn't happen. And from my perspective, I thought it was purely political that this was something that the Obama administration didn't want to do. You know, I don't know what the thinking was, because I did not work in the Obama administration. To me, it seemed like there were people who settled civil cases, like Angelo Mazzillo, with Countrywide, who apparently, you know, reportedly in many official reports, Countrywide's motto, you know, basically, if you if someone could fog a mirror, you were supposed to give them a mortgage loan. Um, and Countrywide, he settled a civil case with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but no criminal case was brought. Now, I wasn't inside it. Maybe there wasn't enough evidence of criminal fraud there, but there clearly was evidence of civil fraud. So what was the difference for them in terms of what they thought his mental state was? What was the decision making there? I don't think we'll ever know. Well, I like that you're being super honest about that. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Oh, I love this question. Um, Looking into the future, what makes me hopeful is that we have a new Attorney General, Merrick Garland, and we also have a new Deputy Attorney General, who was just sworn in, Lisa Monaco. And what you may not know um, is that Lisa Monaco has a background in white-collar crime enforcement. In particular, she worked as part of the Enron Task Force, and she wasn't just a minor part. She was good at securing convictions. She secured convictions of several executives from the Enron Broadband Division, Um, on wire fraud and conspiracy charges, that she received the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Service, which is the department's highest award. So with her in that number two position under Merrick Garland, if there ever was the skill um, and the opportunity to crack down on white collar and corporate crime, we have the right person in that job. Wow, that's tremendous and truly hopeful. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Thank you, Mila, so much for having me. Next week on Future Hindsight, we're joined by Rob Sand. He's Iowa's state auditor, which is basically the taxpayer's watchdog in the state. He's the first Democrat to beat an incumbent Republican in Iowa in 50 years. We're going to talk about public service above politics and how to get stuff done even when you're part of a political minority. That's next time on Feature Hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Zara Birmingham. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.